0: Today's episode is sponsored by Kitten Kaiju Games, publisher of the exciting new zombie card game, 30 Seconds to Live. If you want intense zombie action that feels like the season finale of your favorite zombie TV show, check out 30 Seconds to Live, which will be live on Kickstarter on September 29th. This fast-paced game is easy to learn, and your first time playing will be under 90 minutes, including learning how to play. In this two-player game, you can either play as the survivor, trying to escape the horde of zombies, or you can play as the horde, desperate to kill the survivor. And all of it is set against a 30-second timer, which guarantees an exciting game every time you play. So again, 30 Seconds to Live will be live on Kickstarter on September 29th. And for more information, go to 30secondstolive.com. Hosting
1: for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at QMLogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. A proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week... We want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people
0: love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, today we're going to talk about some funny shapes. We're going to talk about polyominals, polyominal games. We're going to talk about what it looks like to design a game with these odd shapes and how they come together to create fun right all the way you know if you think way back to your early days if you're you know my age or older and you had tetris and and now just an explosion of amazing games out there using these odd shapes using these concepts and we're talking to frank west a designer of one of the uh, the better one of maybe one of the best a lot of people have it as one of their best games of the year in isle of cats is polyomino game frank welcome to the show
2: hey thank you very much for having me here
0: Hey, man, really glad to have you here. Excited to kind of understand your design process, like what all goes into designing these types of games. I've tried my hand a couple times at designing one. It's it's not easy. Uh, it's definitely not as easy as maybe some people think, oh, you just throw some shapes on the board and, and figure out how the account points and stuff like that. No, there's a lot, a lot more to it. So I'm really excited to kind of understand how you have figured it out, you know, Isle of Cats being such a really interesting game. And uh, But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, so I started... I guess really game design, I started as a whole when I was a young child. You know, as a kid, I played a lot of video games and I always just like playing around with ideas. Um, Funny enough, I think back these days to school when I was 16, I had to do a project and I designed a board game for that. And at the time, I didn't really know about board games other than Monopoly, but it's just one of these things that... I always had in the back of my mind. As I went to university, I did computer science. And for my final kind of project there, I chose to write an AI system for an RTS game. And it was just these kind of game stuff was always fun. And then as I kind of got into my like mid 20s, I started to play a lot more board games. Like I'd always had the odd one around. I was big into like Magic the Gathering, but I started playing the more modern board games as we kind of know in the hobby. And with that, I started to realize that a lot of the ideas and thoughts I had for all these video games for all these years, were things that I could start to play around with as board games. And then I started commuting for work. I was traveling to um, Amsterdam for a few months. So I did what anyone does in Amsterdam. And I locked myself in my hotel room and just designed a board game and started putting prototypes and things together. And that was about um, five years ago now, I think kind of 2014, 2015. And I started working on the City of Kings, which obviously was then the first game I released. And it really just kind of grew from there.
0: Yeah, very cool. And so City of Kings did really really well. And so you're telling me you design that game in a hotel room and then it's become what it's become? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, pretty much. I was, so it was something, you know, like the, the
2: the concept behind the game had been a video game idea I'd been thinking about for many, many, many years. And then when I was in this hotel, I was just kind of, what am I going to do with all this time? You know, I'm literally stuck here and I could go out partying or I could stay in my room and work on something. And i would travel back to England in the weekend and my partner, Sarah, um, she would, you know, she's into board games as well and would play these ideas. She'd talk through stuff with me and it just became this kind of collaborative fun project and when I came back from Amsterdam after you know kind of the three or four months of working there it was just something we continued doing. We um, At the time we lived in one room in a shared house and we would just put a piece of wood across our bed and we'd work on the game and play test the game and it just kind of grew organically and then after I guess a couple of years I kind of went to a point of actually, maybe I can make this into an actual product, you know, rather than just being the game we wanted to design. It just became this big thing that we started kind of actually trying to prepare for a Kickstarter.
0: Very cool. That's that's an awesome story. I'm really glad things have worked out so well. And, and, you know, you followed that up with Isle of Cats, which has also done phenomenally well. And I'm excited to see what you come up with next. But let's get into the topic at hand talking about polyominal games. I can't tell you how many times I've practiced saying that phrase getting ready for this podcast because <laughs> polyominal polyo and it's just a funny word. It's an odd word to say. And so polyominal games. What, what does that mean though? Like if you were going to put like a, a good little working definition with that, what is what is a polyominal game?
2: Okay, so in principle, these are tile-based games. So a lot of people refer to them as, you know, the Tetris-like games. But where it comes down to is, like, if you know dominoes, so dominoes are two squares that are joined together to make a rectangle, and they therefore they're a type of polyominal. So these are basically... If you take a square and then you join a number of equal size squares together and form any shape with them, then at that point, they basically become polyomials, which is what the kind of the subset of structures are which make up this type of game.
0: Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And so why do you think these games are so popular? We've mentioned Tetris a couple times already. I mean, that's easily one of the most popular games of all time. I mean, more people have played Tetris than maybe anything else other than possibly Monopoly, right? And so what is it about these games that just draws people in?
2: I think that from a board game perspective, people like a lot of different things in board games. But one of the things that a large amount of people enjoy is kind of satisfaction, that feeling of achieving something, that feeling of putting something together and creating something. You know, worker placement games are often about building up this process or building up this system And polyomial games, they basically are about building something in front of you. You visually see this construction coming together, usually in kind of a 2D format, although there are a few 3D versions. But I think that the reason it becomes so popular is that you visually see what you're creating. So when you get to the end of the game, you have something to look at, something you can say, I built this. And it feels like a visual thing rather than just saying, I achieved this many points. It's a much more kind of feeling of completeness like you've actually kind of created something which i think is why there's this drive behind these games at the moment
0: yeah i definitely agree especially if you look at kind of how the the way the human brain works like we really love patterns we love to finish patterns and that's what polyominoes give us an opportunity to do is kind of create patterns out of these different shapes, clicking together. If you, if you have a game like Blockus, you know, they actually get that, like you're saying, the satisfying feeling of it clicking onto the board and, and kind of coming together. Uh, and it gives you opportunities to feel clever, right? You get to kind of figure out spatially in your brain where these things are going to go to score you the most points or cover up these different things on the board or whatever it is. And then you get to kind of watch that come out out of your brain and onto the the table. And it, it makes you, helps you feel smart, helps you feel clever, uh, hopefully. Some of us, it may, maybe makes us feel not so clever and we don't <laughs> like playing these games. But <laughs> for a lot of people, they, they really enjoy it. But why did you want to design one? What what kind of drew you into actually putting one of these types of games together? So when I started working in the Isle of Cats, it was really this fact
2: that I saw there was two sides to these games. There was the much more common lighter games, so things like Patchwork or, you know, Baron Park, Cottage Garden, that kind of whole set of games, which typically they're kind of like the 30 minutes, 40 minutes. They're very light, very kind of fun game that you can kind of play with anyone. But for me, I wanted something that was slightly heavier. And when you went to the heavier side of these games, you got to things like A Feast for Odin, that obviously is a big, huge, heavy, complex game. But the problem with that was the Pony Omnios just become a missing piece. You know, they're a part of the game, but they're not really what the game is about. They're just like this subset that's kind of injected within. And I really wanted to create a game that had the real heart. You know, these tiles still built up the core part of the game. And if you took everything out of the game, you could still have fun. But then, you know, still having those extra layers that just kind of push it into the 60 to 90 minutes, slightly more complex, not too crazy, but just that nice medium weight game.
0: Very cool. Now, we've mentioned several of these games. What are some of your favorites? Like, what were some of the games that you played or you looked into when you were really thinking about designing one or, or you know, maybe some of the games that gave you inspiration? Which games were those and, and why, why do you like them? It's funny because there are
2: so many of these games, and I think a lot of people, you know, they see things like Patchwork and Feast for Odin and Cottage Garden as kind of the first ones of these that came out. But actually, these games have been around for many, many years. You know, you've mentioned Block Us yourself, and obviously we know Tetris from the video game world, and they've been around for a long time. But for me, my focus was really on the more modern version of them, to try and understand what was creating the popularity in them and why they were suddenly kind of springing up so much. So games like Patchwork, you know, I really love the complete simplicity of it. It's such a quick little game. It's so easy. It's it's a two-player game, which means it's really accessible and it's just really interesting. But at the same time, then there's games like Jetpack Joyride, which is probably a less known one. But Jetpack Joyride is amazingly interesting because it takes... game that's known for kind of ap analysis paralysis you know people sitting there and trying to work out how do i put all these pieces together and then it turns it into a real-time game so it takes away a lot of the complexities of how pieces are placed and what kind of shapes you have but turns it into a real-time how quickly can you see the pattern how quickly can you put this together so i really enjoy that from kind of the how do you deal with that you know people break when they play that game because it can be so much more stressful but I do enjoy it. So I think that there's a good mixture to kind of both sides of these that I do enjoy.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Blockus is one of my absolute favorite games. One of the games I really enjoy playing with my kids, with my wife, Uh, because it is so simple it is so easy here here's here's your pieces and you're just going to put them on the board and you're you know here's the one rule You, you can only connect at the corner you can't overlap anything of yours and it's just a very simple game but at the same time you get to have fun it lets my kids think it causes them to have to think more than just maybe rolling a die and moving around the board they have to actually kind of think spatially it's it's a really great game you mentioned baron park it's another one i love i love figuring out the the turn structure so in that one you have to cover up Different icons, and when you cover those icons up, they give you access to different uh, abilities or actions that you can do for your for your next turn. And so, I think that's really cool. You're, you're having to think ahead, you're having to plan ahead with not only where the shapes are going to go, but where you're going to place them. You know, thinking through the next two or three turns versus just what's going on right now. And so, uh, somebody mentioned before we start recording was a feast for Odin, and a lot of people maybe don't think of it as much as a polyomino game. Tell me a little bit more about that, and, and like why why that is. I think that, you know, by
2: default, it is it has that mechanic in it. It is a mechanic. So if you think of, you know, card drafting, worker placement, dice rolling, these are all features that can exist in games. And I think that where the decisive point of how to classify a game as is it this or not comes in is, is it the heart of the game? Is that the pure function of what you're trying to do? And I would say that with something like A Feast for Odin, You've got so much more that you're thinking about in regards to where you're kind of cho- which actions you're choosing, the engines you're building up, the combos you're trying to create, and the tiles are kind of a reward that you get from that. And sure, you'll make some decisions on trying to get certain shapes, but it's not really about the how am I going to place these pieces. The game is about get a whole bunch of stuff, the most stuff you can. And then afterwards is kind of an afterthought for a lot of people, not for everyone, but for a lot of people, it's an afterthought of how do I put this onto my board. So for me, it kind of features the mechanic, but therefore it's not really a true polynomial game as like the core game itself. Whilst well, so obviously if you take something like patchwork, you know, where everything you're doing is about take the tile that fits the holes and builds up the patterns you're trying to achieve, for me that would truly become like a polynomial game. Gotcha.
0: And, and this is something I think we're seeing more and more of kind of like we saw with deck building where Dominion came out and it's just deck building. That's all it is. You know, if you take deck building out of Dominion, you don't have a game anymore. And, and so after that, you saw all these games like Clank and, and other games that are deck building core, like that's their main mechanism, but then they have all these other things going on. Maybe they have a board, maybe you're moving pieces around, maybe you're, you know, it's a resource management game as well. And so I think you're seeing that uh, with polyomino games is there, you know, you have these uh, games coming out that have that as a mechanism, either secondary or part of it, but there's also other things going on, whether we're talking about In the Hall of Mountain King, which came out recently where you're uh, trolls, I believe, and you're you're going down and digging tunnels and, and you know, scoring victory points, things like that. Tapestry, which came out not too long ago, is another one where you're using these polyomino shaped uh, structures, these buildings as you build up your civilization. Uh, and then there's also Roll and games. I feel like Roll and makes it kind of easy to do because you instead of having to have all these tiles and, you know, it's not exactly cheap to create these games, right? And but a, a roll and write makes it a lot cheaper, where you just kind of roll and then you have access to different shapes and you just draw those in or color those in. Uh, whether it's cartographers is one. I feel like there's another one that I'm missing. A floor plan is another one. I think it's coming out soon or maybe already came out. Uh, is another. It's a roll and write where it's one of these kind of games, but you're drawing on a pad. And so if you listen to this and you're trying to figure out, oh, I want I want to play some games to understand how this this works. Any of those games we just mentioned. Also, Super Mother Loads, one I saw in my research, also Second Chance. And so check those games out if you want to understand how these games work and become better at designing them. Uh, but Frank, let's jump into your game, Isle of Cats. I want to understand your process, kind of the, the challenges you ran into, maybe things that you tried and didn't work and all that kind of thing. But before we get into anything of depth, where in the world did the theme come from? Like, how how did this pop up in your head? Like, I want to make a game about cats on a boat, you know, and their funny shapes. Like, tell me about the theme first. So the theme itself
2: is really interesting to me. So all of my games are set within the same universe. So they're all set within the City of Kings universe. So my first game was the City of Kings. Then I released a very small game called Vadoran Gardens, which was about the backstory of kind of one character's, you know, it's a very deep down kind of sub-story of that game. And then The Eye of Cats is another part of that world. It has the same bad guy, but it just sits in within that kind of overlapping universe. And for me, the theme, it was interesting. So originally, I was sat on my couch. And as I said earlier, I wanted to do this kind of medium weight polyomino game. I was thinking about it for a while. I wasn't too sure. But alongside that, I was looking at my cats and I was seeing them on the floor. And I was thinking to myself, Cats are so known for stretching into all of these different shapes. They're really known for being able to kind of splay out and just, you know, people say that they're liquid. They can really get into any position. And I thought, what a better feature for tiles to kind of fill those gaps than this. You know, cats really give us a way to have some really strong artwork. A lot of these games, typically, because there's so many tiles, they have patterns on them or textures or very minimal artwork. And there's a few that have some, but, for us, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure that every single tile was completely unique, and when you're creating you know two hundred tiles, like that's a crazy amount of artwork. so how do you do that without kind of repeating certain things and this is where cats started to fit so really. i went through this process it was kind of like well i want to make this game i've got this really cool idea for how these tiles can kind of visually look good and it started coming together and the real challenge then was how do i put this into my world you know what is the linking part behind that and during the early play tests like before anyone else was seeing it other than me and sarah It was kind of like, okay, well, you know, we need a a board with squares and we're just going to fill some rooms. So maybe you're some just crazy cat person that's buying cats from a shop and you're kind of cramming them into your building. But over time, I obviously, A, I didn't want to have that theme. I wanted it to be more in my world. But also I didn't like the idea of buying cats. And I started to realize that just through the design process, that there's some really interesting things in these games. So one of the common things that a lot of these games have is that you're placing your tiles onto a square or rectangular board because humans find it very simple or much simpler, I should say, to put pieces together to create a square or flat edges. And I realized that by changing the edges of my board to be kind of less square and more kind of diamond-like, was going to start making the challenge of how to put these tiles together already a little bit more difficult. It takes away some of the preconception you have about how pieces go together because you're not familiar with the shape. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, you know, how does this work? How do these kind of how can I create this board? It's not going to be a house anymore. And then obviously I was thinking about the cats and I didn't want to buy them. So I was thinking to myself, well, let's go to rescue because rescuing is a much better theme. It's a much better kind of way. And then I thought, well, you know, in my world, there's this evil Lord who's trying to destroy everything. So let's Give them an island, because as soon as you've got an island, you can introduce boats and boats have a much more kind of irregular shape to them than a house. And it all started kind of falling into place. So it was a real mishmash between kind of some of the thematical goals I had, but also some of the mechanical drive for creating that shape for that board.
0: Yeah, very cool. All right. I want to know a little bit more about the board in just a second, but first let's talk about the tiles. How did you determine the sizes, like how many squares we're, you know, are, were gonna they're gonna be? You know, a lot of games that I've seen they have all sorts of different ones, and, and you have to, you know, like a, a two square tile costs this much, or you get this many points. Like they kind of break it down almost in like different categories based on the size. And so tell me kind of how you figured out what the shapes are gonna be and the sizes of your tiles.
2: So I wanted to try one of the, again, one of the things that I found with a lot of these games, if you look through them, is that they typically use quite a small set of different shapes. You know, all of them will use, or nearly all of them will use the one by one, the two by one, and the three by one, and the kind of the little corner piece, they're helping you to fill gaps. But from there, you'll find that some games will use kind of just four square shapes, some will use kind of five square shapes, a few will use some sixes or sevens. But typically, they're quite minimal subsets. And I really wanted to create a game that used a, as wide a range as possible. So across our game, we use every um, combination of one, two, three, four, five, and six squares. And we also use some of the seven squares. But as you say, then applying the kind of different the values to those tiles is really difficult. So we started to look at well, you know, the small squares, the ones, the two by ones, the kind of the corner pieces, the three by ones, we're going to make completely available. We're going to make them very easy to get, very cheap, very basic to make sure that people can fill up spaces. But rather than necessarily making them a card, we're going to make you have to perform certain actions or combos in order to kind of unlock those. And then the next kind of square up, the kind of the four square shape. So, you know, you've got the kind of the two by two, the one by four. You've got the kind of... um I should never be doing the top of my head. The kind of the three by one that then has a one sticking out from the middle kind of shape. Those more common shapes. We thought, again, we don't really want them to be too easy to get. So we're going to make them a different type of tile, but put them into the same system as the rest of the cats. So the fives and the sixes, because then we're going to have a good balance between. Well, if you want to take the four shape, the four square shapes, which are going to be more valuable for fitting those harder spaces you're kind of sacrificing a one or two extra squares that you could have got on another tile and potentially higher point tiles, but you're going to be able to fill more difficult shapes. So there's a fine balance between how much you're paying, but also the efficiency of the tile that you're getting. And then finally, the larger tiles, the sixes and the sevens um, really come from these kind of special cats in the game, which are much more kind of interesting and they're really awkward shapes because I thought rather than making them more expensive to purchase, Let's make them more difficult to place. So there's some really peculiar shapes in there, which are just very uncommon in a lot of these games.
0: Yeah, very cool. And I love the tension of, okay, do I take the bigger tile that covers up more space or do I take the smaller one that is a little easier to place? And then just that tension of, you know, the the scoring and and where it's going to go and that kind of thing. I think it's a really cool place for a game to live. And so tell me about the prototyping process because that's one thing i've heard lots of designers talk about like gosh i want to make a game like this but the prototyping is just such a a a difficult thing with cutting out all these shapes and you got to do it again and again and all right that one doesn't work let me do this whole thing again like you said your game has a ton of different tiles so tell me how you did the prototyping
2: yeah unfortunately with these kind of tile games especially when you're doing all of these unique shapes it really is just a case of Putting on Netflix, you know, other streaming platforms exist, and then just sitting there and cutting them out. It takes a long time. Often we will play a game and then we'll spend another four hours cutting out pieces and then we'll play it again and spend another four hours. But you'll find that over time, you'll start to stop changing those tiles. Like everything else in the game changes, but you know, a one by one tile is always going to be a one by one tile. So if you're taking it out of the game now, there's no point in throwing it away because you might need that piece again when you decide to put it back in. So you kind of, we built up like a reservoir of all of these different shaped tiles, which were all just, you know, cut out of um, a thick cardboard just to make sure they didn't blow around too much. One of the challenges with these, if you just cut them out of paper as you're playing the game, it's just going to be a complete nightmare to try and put stuff on the board and not have it moving all over the place. You know, it's just having a weighted piece of paper or cardboard is a real must, but what we did, which was really important, and this is one of my tricks I do for a lot of my prototyping now is not only do I use a lot of like you know thin kind of cardboard for these kind of things, but I also have these sticker sheets and they're basically things that people have for like car boot sales or you know when they're doing street sales where they're just little stickers which are about half an inch by you know a quarter of an inch or you know a centimeter by half a centimeter kind of size, and you basically write all of the details onto those you know if I want a pattern on a tile if I want a number on a tile if I want a price if I want anything on a tile I will do it on the stickers and then we'll stick all of the stickers onto the tiles because then as soon as we make changes all we have to do is peel those stickers back off and put or put a new sticker on top of the last sticker and it's completely reusable I see so many people writing directly onto the pieces and then as soon as you do make a change obviously you have to recut everything whilst in this system it just means that all you're doing is just applying more stickers over everything else
0: gotcha and what did what was your process for like figuring out the actual size like is it half an inch by half an inch squares like tell me about figuring out like how exactly because this has to be exact you can't you know if, if i've got cards i can just cut up a bunch of random rectangles and they could be my cards but for this it needs to be pretty specific so how did you do that part Yeah, so there
2: was a couple of things. I went and got a whole bunch of the games that I have that have these um, components in them and measured what sizes they were using for a start to try and get like a base point. I then made, um, you know, smaller versions as well and bigger versions as well to see how they kind of felt. But then I also started to look at the kind of production restriction side of it, I guess is the right word, where I kind of thought, what is the size of the overall board going to be? How many squares wide is it going to be? How many squares tall is it going to be? And if I want this many squares in there, then how physically long is that going to be if I have them at this size? Because obviously, like in the Art of Cats, you know, if you've got 22 squares in a single row, then if you're adding, you know, two millimeters um, or, you know, a fraction of an inch to each of those tiles, then by the time you've multiplied that by 22, you're adding a good kind of, you know, three, four centimeters, an inch, inch and a half of extra space for every extra one or two mil that you're adding. So there was a real restriction of, How big do I want the overall thing to be? How big do I think that they need to be to feel right in your hand? Because if the tiles are too small, you're going to find them very fiddly. Like if you look at Feast for Odin, their tiles are very, very tiny. and They become quite difficult to place when you're dealing with smaller shapes. So our tiles are actually a little bit smaller than a lot of the other games. But they're at that kind of the smallest point where I felt like they still felt big enough to Feel like you can hold them in your hands and move them around and place them easily without kind of having to have this, you know, delicate tweezer-like touching, while still kind of physically not making it too large onto the table.
0: Gotcha. And what was roughly the average as far as the squares? Like if somebody's listening to this, trying to figure out, okay, how how big should my squares be for each, you know, shape? What was about the average?
2: So from my memory, because obviously this was a good while ago, it was around kind of. 1.6 to 2.4 centimeters were the kind of the two ranges I kind of found lower and higher. So I guess around two centimeters per square, which I guess is what, four fifths of an inch or something along those lines, um, was about um, where those kind of the core squares averaged in size.
0: Okay, gotcha. All right, let's talk about the board. Now, one thing, you know, I was doing research for for this this episode, I watched uh, Jamie Stegmeier's top 10 polyominal games and one of the things that he mentioned uh, as far as reasons why he loves loves these kinds of games is that there's three things that these games typically do uh, with these shapes and the board and whatnot and usually you are covering up bad things you're uh, using shapes to gain income or gain actions or using the shapes to, to to give you good stuff right depending on the game right and so a lot of this is based on how the the tiles lay on to the board. And I know, like you mentioned a minute ago, your board is kind of an odd odd shape compared to a lot of the other games. Uh, but also your, your boards have like rooms and like almost like different things sectioned off in different ways. And so tell me about the board and like how you came up with how to create those sections, how to come up with things to cover up, all that kind of thing.
2: So one of the things, you know, we touched on this right at the beginning of this conversation is that people like the satisfaction of putting things together and being able to kind of complete things. And that's one of the reasons these games have become so popular. And what I kind of found was when you just had a big board and people were just putting tiles into it, you really were just trying to find the efficient way of kind of getting to the end and doing well. While splitting it down into a number of rooms, the subsections of that board, like I did in the Isle of Cats, it meant that people had kind of intermediate goals as they played through the game and they felt like they were achieving stuff. You know, you would kind of say, okay, now I've done two rooms, now I've got to try and get the third room, or now I've got to try and get the fourth room. One of the other sides to that, and in the Isle of Cats, you have rats on your board, which are kind of just single square spaces. So you've got Two types of negative areas. You've got the division into seven rooms or seven sections, and then you've got the um, rats where there's about 20 of them on the board that are spread around and they give you a negative point for not covering them. Now, the advantage of the single rats is they encourage you to kind of spread, they encourage you to kind of move across the board and not just focus too much on one side. But one of the real challenges that I found early on when I didn't have these things is when you get to the end of the game, you've got this objective in your head, you know, you're trying to fill this certain area, you're trying to do this. And you see those last couple of tiles that come out and you look at them and you kind of think, great, I cannot do what I was trying to do. I cannot finish this next section. I cannot do this goal. I cannot put this where I need it. And you suddenly sit there and go, well, I can't be bothered with the last couple of actions. What's the point? And you never want a game where someone at the end of the game is going, there's no point in me doing anything more. I'm kind of done because it doesn't work. So what I found was that you had to have something that someone could always do. So having the rats, the negative like the negative point squares meant that even on that last turn, if you can't complete your major objective, you've still got a tile you can take and you've still got at least something you can do to achieve something and give yourself that satisfaction of every single tile right up to the end of the game is still worth taking because it can still do something. And that was really the driving kind of mentality between the rats and the rooms because obviously the rooms, the larger areas... Give you bigger things to try and do at the end if i can fill one more room at the end that's great but if you really can't do that at least still ticking off one or two more rats is going to give you kind of you know a third level goal a tertiary goal to kind of achieve and still do something on that last turn
0: very cool and it leads into my next question which is about points so typically these games are all about you know scoring points and having the most points and kind of using your tiles in in different ways to score points or gain objective cards and things like that. And so tell me how you figured out your point structure and maybe some of the challenges you ran into as far as figuring out how to make it how to make it good, how to make it fun.
2: So there's a lot of different ways to get points in the other cats. You've got the real basics of there's some tiles that if you just have them you'll get points. Now, there's very few of those and typically you know some people will get none in the game, some people will get one or two. It's possible to get more, but they're a real base level thing you've obviously got the negatives that we talked about with the wraps and the runes. But then the two kind of core scoring elements are the things that I think really make the Isle of Cats really explode into this more medium weight category and also just enjoyment and sense of kind of satisfaction. So one of those is cat families or effectively set collection so the fact that you've got points for placing same colored cats or same colored tiles next to each other so they physically have to be touching it's not just a case of getting eight of them on your boat it's a case of getting a number of them physically touching each other and when you've got five different colors and you're trying to build these tiles all off each other so again the restriction in the Isle of cats that every tile has to touch another tile that set collection aspect gives you a real interesting challenge because you're trying to fill gaps, but you're self-limiting yourself to filling gaps with certain tiles to make sure you can keep those sets together. So the set collection scoring is a really interesting way to make people have this kind of, you know, this mentality of, okay, you know, there are 20 things for me to choose from, but only four of them will build off this set that I've got. So it's kind of The point system from that is really designed about reducing AP. Because I say, if you've got these games, you've got lots of tiles to choose. How do you force players to look at certain ones? And by saying you want a certain color, you're instantly going to look at the pile of tiles that are available and go, well, actually, the primary ones that are useful for me are the blue ones. So I'm cutting away 80% of the options from the start. So that was kind of a real kind of the reason that scoring system existed in the first place was to kind of help reduce those decisions but then the lesson cards are the kind of the thing that really work in this game that make it truly special to me because the lesson cards are something that you draft through a um, standard kind of card draft each round in the game and they set you personal objectives to how you score points so everything prior to this you know the rats, the rooms the treasures um, the cat colors they're all kind of fixed but the lesson cards every time you play you're going to get different ones and they're going to drastically change what you're trying to do so some of them might be simple you know like get a certain amount of each color or a certain amount of these or those but the majority of them focus on changing what you're trying to do so it might be a case of fill up every outside square on the edge of your boat or fill the central row in the middle of your boat, or fill this room on the right-hand side and this room on the left-hand side, but don't worry about the rest. So what it means is, suddenly, when you play the game, you're not playing the game because you want to just fill up a board. The art of cats is not focused on how do I fill my board. The art of cats is how do I complete these objectives that I get, and every time I play, I'm going to have a completely different set of objectives. Which means what I'm trying to do is going be different the rules of why I'm placing tiles and where I'm placing tiles are going to change purely based on what I'm trying to achieve to get my points and when you then tie that in with the basic points of the kind of the colored cats and so on it gives you this real changing goal that just adds so much replayability and interest to the game that it really kind of starts to make it stand out
0: Yeah, that's one of the things I've seen people talk about online with your game is that it is so replayable because every game is going to be very, very different because of these different objectives. Now, tell me about the process of balancing these things. And and obviously, true balance is never a thing. You you can never get true balance. But tell me about how you figured out ways to to make your game balance. Because one thing I I was thinking about with Blockus, right? My kids and I, we play it, but I'm more than likely always going to beat them because they're nine and 11 years old right i'm always going to have a little bit better spatial reasoning than they are and so it'd be great if Blockus, you know made me basically gave me some kind of handicap to where i could still play to win but then they would also still have a chance like it's kind of even the playing field so to speak and so was there anything like that you looked into as far as balancing out your game and just balancing the points in general
2: So, I mean, the points on the lesson cards themselves are balanced purely on a case of looking at, you know, how hard they are to achieve and what the reward of them is and how easy they are to combo with other things. You know, if you've got a card that is completely different to what you would normally do, it doesn't combo with anything else in the game. It's a completely self-standing thing then it's going to give you a higher reward than a card that just says, you know, oh, try and do this, which you may already be trying to do, but just do it slightly differently. So there was a lot of looking at each single one and thinking, what is the purpose of this? How does it balance with the other cards? What combinations exist? And then obviously looking at what the highs and the lows, the peaks are of the scores, and just trying to play test that over and over and over. In regard to what you're saying about the kind of, you know, can how easy is it going to be to handicap yourself or to beat kind of someone if you've got the higher level of skill or more experience in that kind of game? For the standard version of the Isle of Cats, it's not something I worried about too much because I do feel like with these slightly more medium weight kind of games that... If someone has got more experience and plays the game over and over, then I want them to do better. I want them to feel like they're progressing. They're getting better at the game. They're feeling like they know how to do more than perhaps the last time they played. With that said, one of the advantages of the lesson cards and the way they work in the game is they're private. So the lesson cards are um, drafted and then you put them face down next to you. So what this means is when you're playing the game, you never really know how many points anyone's got. You can kind of guess at what they're trying to do, but you've got no idea whether they're doing it well or not. So what this means is when you play the game, you don't get halfway through and look at someone else and go, oh, there's no way I'm going to beat them. There's no way I'm going to do this. And I found that by having the scores kind of much more in this hidden side of things, that when you we were come kind of doing the playtesting, that even if people were being beat drastically by lots and lots of points, they didn't really mind because they enjoyed the entire experience. They were never knowing that they were behind. So they never kind of had that mid game, oh, what am I going to do now? What's the point kind of thing? And then when they got to the end of the game, whilst of course um, the winner of the game and the most points is always important to some people, I found that more people actually found the enjoyment of how well did I do? How did I fill my boat? How did I put stuff onto my board? And that satisfaction, again, that we've talked about, about how have I put my stuff together? And that kind of outweighed the, oh, this person beat me and so on, feeling quite a lot. With all that said, I also developed a family mode of the game. And the family mode of the game is a completely separate rule set that overlaps very slightly. But for perspective, you know, the standard game is a 24-page rule book whilst the family version is a single A4 sheet that's double-sided, so two pages. And the family mode is designed to play with young children, kind of very unexperienced gamers, to kind of introduce them. It's a gateway game. And what that does is that restricts the amount of points you can get much more um, drastically. So the range of the scoring is going to be much more limited and focuses much more on the simpler side of the game. So for the people where they, you know, they're playing with really unexperienced people, that can be a great entryway to make sure that they don't have those concerns.
0: All right, let's keep talking about the playtesting part of things. So what did Tell me about your playtesting process. What were some of the things that you were looking for? Like, tell me about, like, kind of the notes you were taking as people were playing this game in playtesting.
2: So the way I do playtesting is quite different, I think, to a lot of other people because, A, I come from a UX background, so user experience. I'm very used to spending a lot of time doing testing of products and getting feedback from people, and also... I'm very good at putting running things through my head. I'm not one of these people who has to do a lot of stuff kind of in front of me on a table or write it down. I'm very good at kind of mentally thinking things through. So my playtesting basically starts with, right at the beginning, it's me. You know, I play the game a whole bunch of times and then Sarah will start playing it with me. And a few of my very close friends will play the games over and over. And at that point, I really don't care of their opinions and I know it sounds kind of horrible but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to see whether the mechanics kind of tick together and whether the decisions that they make are along the lines of what I want them to be doing and it's really just about kind of the overall cogs and how they're kind of ticking over and as they start to get into where I want them to be at that point I start to kind of care more about what they're saying because I believe that with how I'm designing games and what I'm trying to achieve with them If I know that the game isn't doing what I want it to do, then it doesn't really matter if someone's enjoying it or not, because for me, it's not where it is. And you could say, well, if they really love it, maybe you should be doing it differently. But early, early on, I'm really trying to tick certain boxes. So when I get to that point, I start opening up to kind of a wider area of friends and I start kind of watching them. And again, at this point, it's not so much about what they're saying. The majority of the feedback that I need is watching them because I found that when you do early playtesting, a lot of people, you know, they'll say to you, oh, this was good or this is awful or this is great, but they won't always mention the things that you can observe by purely watching them. When they're placing pieces, you know, if they keep placing something in the wrong place, if you can see they're sat there for ages looking at a hand of cards, if you can see the They're really struggling between certain actions or vice versa. If you see that they're constantly doing the same thing, they won't necessarily tell you this, but that observation is really, really critical. And again, for me, until I get to a point where I feel like the people who I'm watching are going through the motions and they're actually being able to play the game without these kind of problems, the feedback is less essential. The one key thing I always do say to people is, what would you do differently if you played again? And that's always my number one question, because for me, I want to create games where at the end, people can look back and go, oh, if I'd only just done that, or if they can see the error, you know, the City of Kings was a cooperative adventure game. If they could see the moment they made that wrong decision. With the Eye of Cats, if they could see how they could have done it slightly different to get a few more points, that's absolutely critical. So as soon as I've kind of got those boxes ticked, that's when I start going into the bigger, wider audience of testing and just really listening to what people have to say. Are people now the game is doing what I want it to do? People are flowing through it the way I want them to flow. Are they enjoying it? Are they finding things enjoyable? Are there things that they don't like? Are there things they would change? And that's where the more kind of I guess standard kind of questions start to come in. But for me, that's a good kind of 30 or 40% of the way down the line. And then right at the end, the final thing I kind of do when all of that feedback's come through and it's been iterated through, is when I get to the blind playtesting, I will have my rulebook, I'll have the finished rulebook, and I will give it to people who aren't board gamers, people who have absolutely no experience of board games at all, and I will sit there and watch them read it and set up the game and play the first couple of rounds. And don't get me wrong, this is like the most painful thing because you can guarantee they are going to struggle at every single step. But what it does is it really highlights the things that just work perfectly well and the things that are a struggle area. And after I've done that a couple of times, again, I then send that rule book out to the kind of the wider audience and find this is a really good way ahead of the time to observe the challenges. I think too many people with blind playtesting just send the rule books out. And if they come back and they say they played the game and it was good, then that's fine. But for me physically watching someone read a rule book as much as it's a boring thing to do is a really valuable part of that process so i guess that kind of gives you my kind of core steps and a few of the different things i do at each end
0: yeah very cool i'm a huge fan of, of something very very similar as far as handing my rule book handing the game to someone who's never played it before who's not into games who knows how to play uno and monopoly and that's about it i love you know giving the game to them and letting them kind of basically teach me i say teach me how to play this game from the rule book, and that. Gives me so many notes that I can take down as far as how to make things more clear, how to make the the arts and the visuals in the in the rulebook, you know, basically create better graphic design to make everything more stand out that needs to stand out because a lot of times, you know, they'll skip over certain things and say, "Oh man, you just skipped over that entire step," yeah, you know, and why is that? And, and it's such a, a really good way to do it. Now, as far as playtesting Isle of Cats, what were some of the things that changed? What were some of the things that you had in the game that just didn't work out? after you playtested, or maybe some things that were just kind of, it's too much, maybe different ways to score or things like that. Tell me about how playtesting changed the course of the game. So
2: some of the simple things are, you know, the obvious like lesson cards, ways of scoring and stuff change. The values of those cards were very basic things. Some of the bigger changes, I think, so how you play through the game, you've got rounds on I mean, each round. You get your income of fish, which you use to pay for things. You have your card draft, you play your scoring cards, You then play your cat rescuing cards to allow you to take the cat tiles and then once that's done you take the treasure and the Oshak's tiles which are the very small tiles and the very big tiles and you have those two decisions tied together because it means that you're choosing between do I want to take the really big rewarding stuff that's going to fill lots of spaces or do I want to take the very small ones that are going to help me fill those gaps But originally, when you took the cat tiles, the treasure tiles and the Oshak's tiles, all three of those things came in at the same time. And that was really interesting. And I recommend to anyone who's a really heavy gamer, if you're into really heavy, complex games and you want to try a variant of the Isle of Cats, then feel free to do those two phases together. Because what it does is it creates a much, much more complex game where you're looking at and going, okay, I want a blue cat that I can rescue to put on my board to build up this blue family. But I want the Oshaks because the Oshaks is a huge tile that's going to fill up lots of spaces. But I also want the little tiles because I need to fill these gaps. And the risk is, is if you don't take one of those tiles now, another player is going to take it before it comes back to you. But by having those two phases or um, parts of that round together, what it's effectively doing is it's creating a huge decision point. You're having so many more options because it's no longer just about what tile do I want for my board. It's about... Which of these three different types of tiles do I want? How do each of those work with these different things? And I found that, as you can imagine, a lot of players just sat there and they just sat there and they just sat there and they just sat there and it just went on and on. And it had to be broken out to kind of bring that down into two steps. So that was one of the big major changes that happened fairly close towards the end because it was really about how do I optimize the playthrough you know you don't want people to be sat there thinking too much so that was a bit of a change another one of the changes was the costing on the cards so this for me was a really powerful moment because the cards themselves you draft and once you finish drafting them you then have to pay for the ones you want to keep and discard the ones you don't and originally as with you know a lot of games you drafted and you just got all of the cards But having this cost system on it was something I introduced because I found that it added so much more interest. You didn't feel like if you got given a bad card in the draft, if you got a few cards which were awful and it was frustrating because I had a really bad card draft this round, it didn't matter because typically, on average, people are going to keep three to five cards out of the seven they draft. So if you've got some bad ones, that's fine because if you've got seven good ones, you're not going to be able to afford to keep all seven good ones anyway. So that was something that I found helped remove the dissatisfaction from drafting and getting too many bad cards. I mean, there's there's a whole list of examples I could run through, but I guess those are the first two that come to mind.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear a few more. And I know people listening to this, you know, if, if they're trying to design one of these games, it's super helpful to them to hear, you know, successful designers talk about the challenges they've run into. I know a lot of new designers have this idea in their head that great designers just, Basically, poop out great games, and it's just not true, right? You, 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 no matter who you are, whether you're Eric Lang or Rob W or Matt Leacock, your designs typically change a great deal through the process. Uh, and I can't tell you how many game designs that those those guys have just thrown in the trash because they didn't work at all. And so, tell me a little bit more. Tell me some more of your uh, design challenges that you're running into. So, yeah, I think that one of the, and I completely agree. I think that game design is a really
2: interesting thing because you know, unless you're talking about very small games, and very small games, I would say. Are you get a really cool idea and you run with it? You know, there's one real heart meaty kind of mechanic that makes that small game pop. And coming up with that is near impossible, but it's something that once you've come up with, you can create that game very easily and you know, not always, but a lot of the time and run with it. But as soon as you start getting to games that have these multiple mechanics and all of these different systems working together, then they take iteration. And you can't be afraid to take something out of the game i you know i i won't distract too much from the other cats but i remember with the city of kings there was a mechanic in that game that i loved so much and it was like two years you know often you hear about people you know oh are you changing your game because of feedback or are you just keeping it how it is because you're passionate and that's what you want and there was something in the game it was the one thing i kept because i just loved it so much and after two years of playtesting i finally had to change it because i knew that it wasn't right for the game and with the other caps like one of the core mechanisms so the type of cards in the game are basket cards so these are green cards that have pictures of baskets and they have pictures of boots and once you finish drafting these cards so you get to the play basket card phase the rescue phase you choose how many of these cards you want to play And the boots are turn order, so whoever has the most boots, when you flip them and reveal them, is going to be the first player. And then, obviously, who has the least is going to be the last player. And the number of baskets you play is how many cats you can rescue, how many tiles you can take. And this is really interesting, because originally, the Isle of Cats actually had um, basically blind bidding in the game. It was kind of like an auction-y game. And it was really interesting because this was the first idea that I really had for the system. So what you would do is you would take all of those cards in your hand and you would put them down into different groups in front of you. So you could put all of them like face down. So you could put all of those cards into one group or you could have two cards in one and three cards in another or you could have five groups of one. And uh, once everyone had done this and you could see how many piles people had, but nothing else, you would flip them over. And each individual pile would then go in order. So whoever, whichever pile had the most speed, the most boots would be resolved first. And they would take a number of bar cats equal to the number of baskets within that group. So you would, but it was limited to two. So you couldn't have more than two. I should just put that out there. So what that means is, if I just want to take five different cats, then I'm going to want to put as many different piles together as possible, but equally, I'm then going to have like to go last, because there's going to be no boots in any of those piles, and not very many, whereas the other player might have just one big pile with everything, and they're guaranteed to go first, but they're going to get less. So this created like this really interesting kind of, well, I reckon I've seen this many cards, I reckon I've seen this, and it was a really nice um, kind of I say blind bidding because you're effectively putting piles together with your bids for how many you're going to take and when you're going to take them but I was playing with um, John from John Gets Games and he was doing a play test when I was at Gamma um, last year and he said to me like I really enjoyed the game but I really hate this kind of like bidding in games like it's not You know, I don't hate how you've done it. I just don't enjoy games with that in. So for me, I don't think this game is as good as some of the other games I've played for my personal tastes. And it was really funny because it was one of those moments where I was like, well, you know, this is his personal taste. It doesn't matter. But where it hit me was I had never considered the game without that bidding system. It was something that was just there from day one. And I really liked and just worked. But as soon as I kind of heard that, and I was like, actually, you know what, why do not I just explore it? Why didn't I just for a moment think, what if I took it out? What if I did something different? And sometimes that's really important, because you get so driven into this system works, and I like it, and it's great that you don't really think about what if I changed it. So on my flight back to the UK, I was thinking to myself, well, What if I took the bidding out? What if I just changed that system slightly and everyone just revealed them all? And rather than saying each pile is how many you can take, just players take it in turns. So like you take one, I take one, you take one, I take one, until the number of cards we have runs out. Because that means you're not going to have players sat there taking multiple tiles at once, which again is really painful for kind of downtime. But it just simplified the game. And as soon as I made that change, I was just like, this is so much better now because it just flows so much. You're just going around the table. Rather than each player taking big actions, you've got lots of micro actions. You've got lots of small little things going on. And it just flows so much better. It's so much smoother. And from a gameplay perspective, it just feels so similar. You know, you don't feel like it's missing. You don't feel like something's been taken out. And from that moment, the game, that was it. The game was done. And that was the last change of, like, you know, big kind of change which came in. And it was a real interesting, like, you could easily change the game tomorrow back to how it was and it would still work and still be great. But this way just works that little bit smoother whilst providing the same experience. And it never would have come in if that one person hadn't said to me, personally, I don't like this type of game, which was, you know, it was a fascinating little thing to kind of play on.
0: Yeah, very cool. Now, real quick, what was the change for City of Kings that took you two years to do?
2: Okay, so... In the City of Kings, you effectively have a you have time. So there's this hope tracker, and it goes down. So every six turns, it goes down by one. And when you run out of you know hope, you lose the game. So that's kind of the clock that sits behind the game. And originally, because this was called hope, you know, so if you run out of hope, you lose, and you've got a certain amount of time to achieve it. Otherwise, the city gives up hope that you can achieve what you're trying to do. But if you died, if one of your characters died, you would then kind of, your character would go back to the starting tile and you would lose hope. Because thematically, I just love this concept of, well, you know, if one of your characters gets critically injured, then everyone's obviously going to give up hope that you can achieve what you're trying to do. And it just tied in really nicely. It gave you that one tracker that counted down. But what I eventually had to do was that life tracker got put into a separate tracker. Because what I was finding is, if you were playing six turns per player and then losing one hope, or if someone died, you lost one hope, then if you were designing the game on the basis that sometimes people will die once, sometimes people will die twice, you're effectively adding this variance of how long the game can take to play. You know, if your group plays the game and no one dies, and my group plays the game and we die that one or two times, then your group is going to take at least an hour longer to play through the game. And it was one of those things where thematically it just tied in so well and it just from a play perspective it felt nice because you really felt like if you died you were losing six turns worth of stuff you know it was a huge penalty and whilst obviously the game was designed that you could die and do that it just added too much um, flex to how long it took to play that it just couldn't stay in there
0: gotcha that makes a lot of sense all right switching back over to polyomino games Tell me about these games as products, right? Because it's a lot of it's easy in a lot of ways to create a game that works. It's a little harder to create a game that's fun, but it's way harder to create a game that people actually buy. And so, how in the world do you turn an idea into a game and then a product when it comes to a polyominal game? So I think that this
2: works with you know it. For me, the same argument you said with all games regarding of the mechanic is that, A, you know, the game itself has to be good. I always say that anyone can create a game and be successful, but if you want to create a second successful ge- a second game, your first game has to be good because, you know, you can trick people into buying a game with nice artwork and nice videos and nice this and nice that, but if your first game isn't solid, no one is going to come back and buy the next one. So for me, the game mechanics, you know, the game experience itself has to be fantastic. But outside of that, you have two different tiers. One of those for me is the theme, the story behind the game, the kind of the narrative and what the kind of game is about. And then the third one of those is the artwork and the production. And I believe that all three of those have to hit certain points for a game to truly be successful. If you don't have the nice components, if you don't have the nice artwork, then you're really going to struggle to get people to look at your game mechanics. Likewise, if you don't have a theme that people are interested in or a theme that grabs people's attention or a theme that makes sense within what you're trying to do, then people aren't going to be looking at it. They're not going to be as interested interested in it and this balance between these three things i think is the most critical part to producing a product that you can actually sell rather than just designing a game
0: definitely and so when it comes to polyominal games you know a lot of these games have very interesting themes whether you're creating a bear theme park or you're quilting a quilting a quilt or or whatever so what is it about these kinds of games as far as products like your, your game is about rescuing cats off an island and putting them on a boat Right. I feel like a lot of these types of games have very interesting kind of odd themes. And so tell me a little bit more about that.
2: The core to it really is a lot of people, you know, a lot of these games, as I've said before, are quite light games. So you want quite a gentle theme. You know, you really don't want to have this light family-friendly game that's about killing people and blowing things up and destruction. And you can do that and there'll be a market for it. But a lot of these games are typically played by families and that kind of that younger kind of audience as well as other people. So having fun themes to it is really important. But I think that you've got to remember that people are trying to build something you know this is the core of these games is you're putting things onto something so in the art of cats the satisfaction at the end is looking at all of these cats that you've rescued and managed to save you know in baron park you're looking at the fun exhibits that you've kind of placed down on patchwork you're looking at the beauty of the quilt that you've kind of created but having something that you can look at at the end and feel like it has purpose is really the kind of the core because you can imagine if you had one of these games where you have your board and all of the tiles are just different resources for instance let's say you know you've got a warehouse and you've got grain you've got coal you've got food and all of the different shaped tiles are just these kind of different resources that you're trying to put into it at the end of the game, you're going to look at it and it's just—it's not going to feel satisfied. It's not going to be fun to look at. You're just going to say, yeah, okay, well, I've got my grain over here, I've got my apples over here, and it's its not got that same visual kind of presence at the end. And I think that's one of the, the uniquely key things to these games, which you could argue is the same with a lot of tile placement games. You know, with Carcassonne, for example, how you have something that looks pleasing to look at at the end of the game.
0: Yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Frank, this has been awesome, man. You have any closing thoughts? Like, what would you tell somebody who maybe is listening to this, they've been trying to design a polyominal game or or maybe they're, you know, have an idea in their head for, for one that would be cool? What would you tell them? That's certainly the kind
2: of you know, the toughest
0: question of this. I think that
2: really, I'm a firm believer that people should just try. They should put something together and get going. I have this real mentality these days of, just put it together and play it and see what happens. I've got a couple of friends. um, One of them runs a board game store in Bristol and they absolutely hate me these days because often when I'm traveling there, it takes me about 40 minutes to get there. I will make a prototype on the bus. You know, I'll come up with an idea on the bus. I'll put a few bits together. And when we get there, they'll be like, oh, so we're playing this tonight. And I'll be like, well, can we play test this first? Because I really feel like too many people just sit there and think, I'm not going to put this in front of people until I'm ready with it. And these games, you know, putting on the games, it's very easy to get a basic thing working because fundamentally your decision point is what are we putting them onto? Why are we putting them onto there? And what is the pros and cons of filling different spaces? You've got a good idea to start with the kind of tile shapes and, you know, the physical rules of base a tile, rotate a tile, turn a tile, whether it's going over the lines and so on. So it's a very simple mechanic To get a basic game together for playtesting very quickly and i think that that's something that should be really considered you know if you've got a deck building game it's super hard to just sit there and put all these different cards together where you start to get this engine that's working but with these games, you can just get the tiles and start placing them. And, you know, with the Art of Cats, you've obviously got card draft. You've got all this other stuff around it. But you don't need to do that to start with. You can look at the, well, if these are the inputs into the decision of placing tiles, and these are the outputs of placing tiles, then what actually happens in the tile placement phase? And then just expand the game
0: from that point. Awesome. Well, Frank, again, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with your, your other games that I know you're working on, your company and everything else you got going on right now.
2: No, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on here. And, you know, if people have questions or they want to discuss this further, I'm always happy to kind of hear from people. If you go to our website, thecityofkings.com or find me on Twitter, which is City of Games HQ, which you can find through the website, then, you know, send me a message or like tweet at me or whatever. And I'll be more than happy to kind of discuss through stuff.
1: Awesome. Thanks for listening.